Thanks for joining us on the Oasis Church Podcast. To find out more about Oasis, visit CelebrateTheJourney.org. During this episode, Pastor Dennis Ritchie shares a great message that will lead you to new and deeper levels with Jesus Christ. So open up a Bible, grab a notebook, or simply listen along. Yes, it is. Okay. So who here thinks that they have a calling in God's kingdom? We all, that's, that's better. Stephen, calling? Okay, good. Because I want to tell you that, you, well, I'm not calling you up, but. <laughs> we all have a calling in the kingdom of God. We all have a mission In the kingdom of God. And because of that, God is in the business of refining us, refining his his people. And it's a constant process. It never it never really goes away. And and sometimes that refining kind of interrupts our best made plans for the things that we want to do. And sometimes that refining means that the things that we had planned for kingdom work doesn't quite go the way we had hoped they would go. And we might even think that we have failed. Now, this process of God getting a hold of you and doing some work in you and maturing you, you know, when, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you at that point of conversion, God begins, and there's this refinement. And then there's always the on-the-job refinement that just kind of takes place every day, the ups and the downs of life, the ups and downs of what you're called to do in God's kingdom. Now, there's this guy by the name of Saul we've been looking at in the book of Acts, And he is soon to be known as the Apostle Paul. But right now, chapter 9, he's still Saul. This was his life. The ups and downs of ministry and God refining him, maturing him, so that he could, well, seriously, impact the entire world. Now we have have, um, the road to Damascus that we talked about last week. This, This experience that Saul has where God says to him, you know, Saul, enough is enough. Now my hand is going to be upon you. You are mine. And Saul goes through this overwhelming experience of the grace of God being poured out upon him. In fact, Jesus would appear to him in a vision. Like, can you imagine just walking down the road all bent out of shape because of church, and then Jesus appears to you and says, really? Really? I mean, that's kind of paraphrase. That's the message version. But you, you get what I'm saying. And so Saul ends up blind, physically blind. He's weakened. He's kind of taken his shots. He's not this uh, man full of wrath and passion or passion for the wrath to stop Jesus and stop his followers. And he's led by the hand into Damascus. And then when Ananias comes to pray over him because God tells him to go pray for this servant of mine, He lays his hands on him, and and, and what looks like scales fall from his eyes, and Saul can now see. But also, those scales have fallen from his spiritual eyes, and they were opened, and he now sees the truth. But that's not the end of Paul's story, Saul's story. Check this out. Acts 
Acts chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So Paul gets to work. He's, he's had this amazing conversion experience, like scales fell from his eyes. He now understands that Jesus is the Son of God, and he goes into the synagogues, and he starts to preach that. He's going to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to tell them that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament that pointed forward to this, to this Messiah, this, this kingdom on earth, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Now, sometimes we forget, at least I do sometimes, that Saul is a man. He's, 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 like, he's like us. He's one of us. He is, if I dare say, just a, a guy. Yes, he's chosen by God. He writes a lot of the New Testament. I get that. But yet, he's still just a man with all of the issues that all people or men tend to sometimes have. At this point, he doesn't know too much about Christian theology. He is not a Calvinist yet, and he's not an Arminian yet. He hasn't written any of his letters yet. He's just beginning. But the one thing he knows for sure is Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? That word astonished means that people were, they, they were like ecstatic. They just can't believe what's going on. Here's this guy who stood by while um, Stephen was, was killed as a martyr. He's been throwing men and women, raiding homes, throwing them in jail. And now he is preaching what he used to persecute. You know, there's always this glow about someone who first comes to Christ. We say they're on fire for the Lord, right? And, and there's always something that, you, you, there's just this excitement. And here we have Saul. He's got this incredible intellect. He's got the mind of a lawyer because he, he, he argues his case. He can show and point that Jesus is the Messiah from the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. He, can, he has memorized at least the first five books of the Bible. He is a pedigree of religious academics of his day. And the people are just really unsure about this guy who wants to now preach what he was breathing out threats against. You know, if you think about your Christian walk, there's kind of these stages that we go through as Christians. Like there's the, the first phase of the journey. It's, it's all fresh and it's new and it's easy. And you, and you carry your Bible around everywhere with you and, and you and you mark it all up and you want to be at every Bible study and you want to be at every event at the church. And it just seems very easy to tell people about Jesus. But then as time goes on, there seems to be this, this second phase where things become difficult because now that you're following Christ, God begins to work on you and starts to kind of point and prick and, and, and um, 
and, and kind of just grab a hold of your heart. And he calls us to a place of sacrifice. And things begin to be a little bit difficult. Wait a minute. My, my, my heart, my spirit feels a little bit frustrated. What's, what's God doing? And then, and then from there you move to the impossible phase where you realize that it's only by the grace of God that we can follow him. It's only by the grace of God that empowers us to live anything that resembles the life of Jesus. And we fall to our knees and praise him for who he is and who we are in relation to him. Saul is at the very beginning of his journey. It's fresh. He's excited. People aren't so sure about him yet. And he grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. But now here's the thing. Saul is not ready to hit the big time yet. Saul is not ready to become Paul. He had some maturing to do. He had some, uh, God had to reveal to him the truths of the gospel. There was some refining that had to take place in him. And that refining process, I'm going to tell you, takes longer than we expect, takes longer than we hope. I am sure that Saul felt the same way. He's got this impressive resume as far as resumes go. He had these naturally, or, or natural God-given abilities. He was, he was high up in, in the religious elite. And he almost had this supernatural knowledge of the scripture. He could understand it. He memorized it. He could teach it. But all of that was not enough for God because the Lord had to do work in him before he unleashed him onto the world. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, what Saul ended up doing is, is what is referred to here in Acts chapter 9 between verses 22 and 23. Listen to what Saul said. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. So Saul heads into Arabia, desert. More specifically, the Sinai wilderness. And that's the first step in his uh, refinement process to become Paul is that God is calling him away from ministry for a while so that he can reveal to him who God is. And that's where Saul finds himself in the wilderness so he can understand the gospel message. You see, in our lives, in any ministry that you are called to, there is always this need for a, a deep spiritual grounding in the knowledge of who God is. And this is what he's experienced because there's always this, there's always this little bit of a danger when new Christians are given too much success or too much responsibility in ministry. Because what can happen is they become or can become full of themselves. And, you know, as I look back on my life, there have been so many things that, that I've tried to do, especially early off, that, well, that looked like to me they, they failed miserably. There was this one time uh, back at the, the old church I was at where the Lord got a hold of me. I was brandy new 
uh, following Jesus, probably a year in. And I, and I believe we were doing this, this missions conference thing. And we had all these classrooms at the time. And, and these people were volunteering to teach these kids classes about uh, missionaries and missions. And, and there was this one age group that nobody wanted or, or nobody signed up for. So I decided that I would step up because that's just the way I roll. And I stepped up, I volunteered, and then it was on. And I decided that I was going to have the single best classroom out of the whole missions conference. Now, this is like 20 years ago. So it's before the internet, before you can download everything. And so I got to task. And I bought stuff. And I, and I made Bible verses. And I had crayons. And I had arts and crafts that would... Um, reinforce the lesson that I was teaching. And then from there, I had icebreakers and then a game at the end to reinforce the arts and crafts, which then reinforced the lesson that I was speaking. My room was going to be the room. Then the night of the event happened. And I've got li- all on those little tables, I have all the little packets made up, even crayons, like, like the primary colors of the crayons. And I had them all laid out on the table. And people are coming in, and I'm waiting by the door. My room is going to be awesome. In fact, I guaranteed that other kids are going to want to come in my room because, oh, I'm me. Well, as the night progressed... I realized that the parents in my age group must have not got the memo that I was hosting the classroom because as the other classes were filling, no one came to my class. And I stood at the door thinking this must be a terrible mistake that God had, it it couldn't be, this was the devil attacking the church and the gates of hell would not prevail. And I was, found myself going to the next classroom to help obviously a substandard lesson. No one showed. And as I look back on that, I realized that if I had the best classroom, that I would have become way too full of myself and the Lord would not have it. The glory was going to go to him, even though I tried to take it. God is a way of humbling us Spiritual grounding is a must to have kingdom ministry, kingdom impact. In fact, later on, Paul would tell Timothy in his letter not to give new converts too much responsibility in the church. And he's talking about in the context of of being an elder, spiritual leader. But it's a very good principle to maintain because he said that, that, that if a new convert gets too much responsibility, then they may become conceited and watch this and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So imagine the Lord in my dismay saving me from the same judgment as the devil. Now with Saul's credentials, with his knowledge, with his, with his abilities, he, you would think that God would have immediately promoted him. All right, you're not Saul, you're Paul, get out there and do it. But the Lord had another plan. Instead of promoting him, he would seclude him. Now, the details of what, take, what took place in Arabia, we really don't know. But we can kind of reasonably ascertain a few things because of through his teaching and through his letters. And we know that Jesus was revealing himself to Saul 
with just incredible insight and revelation and wisdom. In fact, later on, he would write a letter to the Ephesus church, and he wants the same thing for them as he experienced in Arabia when he was away from ministry for three years. He prayed that God would give the church the spirit of revelation and wisdom. Why? So that the church could know him, God, better. So all of this knowing, this time with the Lord that Saul spent would fill him with such a hunger that he never could get enough. There was never a point where he said, I am filled to the top with the things of God. I don't need any more. In fact, he would write to the Philippian church. Oops. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing Worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul could not get enough. His desire was to know, to know Christ, to know the resurrection, to know the life, to know the suffering. There was nothing more important to him than to know his Savior. But there would be more taking place in Saul as he's away, as God takes him away, takes him out of the picture for a while. You see, he not only had to know who Jesus was and who God is, but he really had to know himself. He had to understand who he was. Whenever we begin to recognize the glory of the Lord, whenever we begin to understand the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, when we really begin to know him, is the beginning of it's the beginning of ourselves seeing ourselves for who we are. It's, it's what Isaiah went through as he wrote in chapter 6 of, um, of his book. He said in the year of King Uzzah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then this is, what, this is the realization Isaiah comes to. Woe to me, he cries. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah got a glimpse of who God was and who he was in relation to this holy God. You see, Saul had to get over being Saul, the great Pharisee named after the first king of Israel. He was proud that he was from the tribe of Benjamin because the Benjamites were the first tribe that went into battle. He considered himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he outdistanced himself from all his contemporaries. He was, he was progressing quicker and farther than anyone his age because he was that guy. In fact, he would say, as, as following the law, I was faultless. 
So basically, if, if he were here today among us, he would say, I am Saul, I am from the tribe of Oasis, and I am a Christian of Christians. As to the gospel, I am the epitome of all that is gospel. No one can touch me. You see, that's the arrogance that Saul had. And God had to break him of that arrogance. In fact, as he changes his name to Paul in the original language, Paul means small. See, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there's no greatness in us, but God is great through us. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there's no power that's inherently in us, but the power of God is manifest through us by the Holy Spirit. We have no righteousness of our own in us, and yet we've been given the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith. Even our salvation, we haven't earned it. We haven't earned it. We haven't bought it. We can't buy it. It's only because Jesus went to the cross that we've been saved. See, it's that maturity that Saul had to come to before God unleashes him into his ministry to understand that you can't make much of yourself and make much of God at the same time. But when we take a step back and we exalt God, then he gets the glory and he begins to work. But there needs to be a maturing and a refining in us before he will let us go into that ministry. And so Saul was preparing for ministry by spending time with the Lord, that he would know who God is, know who Christ is, and that he would also know him himself. Now, he asks this of, he asks this of all of us. And, and I don't mean that he's going to send you away to the desert for a few years, but we must, please listen to me, we must spend time one-on-one with the Lord. We have to spend time in the word of God. We have to spend time in prayer. We have to spend time in reflection and meditation. Moses, think of Moses. He spent 40 years thinking that he was somebody, that he was Egyptian royalty until he killed the dude. And then it all came crashing down. And then he spent the next 40 years learning who he really was and who God is. And only after that 40 years of revelation of who he is and who God is, was God able to use him for the last 40 years of his life to lead his people out of Egypt. Joseph and his technicolored dream coats, he spent years as a slave, years in jail. Joseph was arrogant. Joseph had an attitude problem. God gave him these dreams, and he just had to be, he had to tell his, his brothers and his father, you're all going to bow down to me one day. You watch. God was like, yeah, that's not going to do. And so he spent years as a slave. He spent years in jail so that God can finally, once he was matured, God can finally promote him to second in charge of all of Egypt. In fact, God used Joseph to save the lineage of Jesus. Because Jacob would come and get food. David spent, what, King David, 13 years running in the wilderness from King Saul after he was anointed king. So imagine that. David, you're now king. Boom, 13 years running in the desert so that God could shape him into the person, into the man he wanted on his throne. And if you will allow yourself, God will do the same for you. And that preparation, it doesn't take place overnight. It is, and it can be, 
a very long and tedious process. And sometimes that process is difficult and challenging and frustrating. The year was 1998. I was on a worship team at the old church. And we had gone to a worship conference up in New Hampshire. And there was a, uh, we were part of just, just kind of a, a general time of worship for the conference. And there's been two times in my life where I've heard, don't think I'm crazy, um, I've heard the audible voice of God. And this was the first time, and, I, and I'm there, and I'm worshiping, and I'm, and I'm just, just kind of sucked into what God is doing there. And I heard this voice say, you will be in full-time ministry. And I thought, huh? Okay. Six years later, I was voted in as pastor of student ministries at the church. And the next three and a half years would prove to be some of the most difficult, frustrating, hard years of my life. I was on staff when I got hired. The church was 350 people. There were three pastors. Before I knew it, there was 83 people and one pastor left, and that was me. And what I found later was there was a, um, a lot of people in the church that didn't want me to be the interim pastor, but through uh, just <laughs> there was no one left. So I stepped into that role, and we tried to put the church back together again. We tried to heal all the hurts and it became evident that they were looking for their new pastor. They, they did not want me. And it's, it's, it's nothing wrong with that. They just didn't feel that I had the experience or the right education. And so I ended up after about two years, two real difficult years, um, leaving that church. And I remember waking up that Monday morning after my last Sunday and just thinking, what just happened? And I was tired and I was beat up. And I was done with church. Um, somebody called me a few days later and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm sitting on the deck. I got three months severance. Woo, woo. And I said, well, what are we doing about church? I said, I don't know what you're doing, but I ain't doing church. And it was out of those years of trials and frustrations and hurts, for better or for worse, Oasis was born. God will use the challenges of life, of ministry, to bring you to a point where he wants to release you into something different, to something more. Now, look at still Saul's story. Let's see here. After many days gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. <laughs> now, I wasn't ever lowered in a basket because people wanted to kill me. But I, I did take the, um, the tomato shots every once in a while. What Saul was doing to the church, now the Jews want to do to him. They want him dead. And it would seem that this experience for him was a little bit humiliating because in 2 Corinthians, he talks about it. He says, you know, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. And then he recounts this. 
this, this episode where he wants to get, uh, people want to kill him. He doesn't know what to do. They lower him in a basket. And he gets to Damascus, and he's ready to go. But there's stiff resistance, right? He, he, he's just, what's going on here? I'm taken away. I'm matured. I think I'm matured enough. And then I go back, and I, and I launch into ministry. And now this, people want to kill me. It's a humbling experience. But see, God is in the business of allowing those humbling experiences in our lives. Imagine, imagine if every instance that you went to serve the Lord, that it was just mountaintops and rainbows, that unicorns would just fly by, skittles would rain down on you and just stick all over you, and you would have a happy, happy day. Imagine if it was always like that. You see, our human nature, we would become full of ourselves. God will keep us humble. See, if Paul had immediate success, he was just a man. Yes, used by God, but he had all of the, the inner brokenness and workings of a human being. And if he just came out of the box filled with success, he was hitting everything, right, every nail right on the head, then he wouldn't be able to write these amazing verses that point us always to God. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he would write that we have this treasure in jars of clay that could show us the, the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, it's never about us. It's always about him. And failure is not necessarily a bad thing. What we look at as possibly I failed can be very much a lesson that God wants to show us, to bring us through. So failure is not necessarily a bad thing. In 1968, a doctor by the name of Spencer Silver set out to create a almost uh, permanent adhesive or glue. This was going to be the stuff. You put a little dab on it. Nothing gets separated. And so he sets out to create this for a company called 3M. And at the end of all of this all of these laboratory experiments, he ends up with some of the weakest glue that he's ever seen. He sets out for, to make something almost permanent. He ends up with something that looks to be useless. But that's the glue that we use now for post-it notes. What looked like a failure would end up being used in almost every household in the world. what looks like a failure in our ministries can be this beautiful, sacred preparation of the Lord doing something in us. Because I've said this for many, many years, the only real failure in life is a failure to learn. That when something doesn't go the way you've planned it, that's not the failure. But if you fail to learn from that experience, then we can counted in there as, as you failed. But if you've missed the mark and you've tried and you could step back and go, even if it's simple as, oh, I won't do it that way again, it's not a failure. You have learned something. When Saul came to Jerusalem, again, this is three years in, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. <laughs> Imagine, 
an amazing conversion. Three years of God humbling him, revealing to him who the Lord is and, and who he is. He's already taken his shots in ministry. He gets lowered in a basket because people want to kill him. And now he's rejected by the leaders of the church. He comes to them thinking, all right, here we go. And he's, they're afraid of him. After so much time, they're still afraid of the reputation that Saul has. In verse 27, it says it all. But Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. But Barnabas, the ministry of Barnabas, he heard Saul out. He heard his story. He took time to listen. He had faith that God was at work in him. He can discern that the Spirit of God was upon him. Barnabas somehow saw the best in the person regardless of their past. He wasn't judging solely just on what happened in the past, but what God is doing in the future. And finally, Saul is on the road to ministry, and he goes around, and he's preaching. The spirit of Barnabas, the encourager, the spirit of Barnabas confirms the gifts that we see in other people. The spirit of Barnabas reconciles brothers and sisters together. It takes risks in others in relationships it promotes the ministries of others and not just their own so that the kingdom of God will advance. See, God will use that, that posture of Barnabas, both in men and women, for the glory of his kingdom, how we all could learn from just that one simple verse that we would come alongside, that we would promote, that we would help brothers and sisters not only find their ministry, but mature into their ministry, promote their ministry. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. He talked and debated with Hellenistic Jews, and they tried to kill him again. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. Ministry launched, but it's still not smooth sailing. I say, welcome to kingdom work, Saul. There are successes that you will experience in the ministry God calls you to. There will be failures that you will experience in the ministry God calls you to. There will be times of quiet and maturing and refining in the ministry that God calls you to. You know, the timeline for all of this, we don't really hear from Saul again for another eight to ten years when Barnabas goes to him and says, listen, I really need some help with this church in Antioch. And then Saul then steps into the limelight. Thirteen years of preparation before he hits the big time. See, here's some principles I want you to remember that God is going to do everything in order to do away with our 
um, our energy and our trust in our own self, in our own talents, in our own giftings. God wants to squish the self so that we could be more like his son, Jesus. He wants to release Christ in our lives. And in the kingdom of God, no one is indispensable. All have a purpose. Each one of you in here has a purpose, a ministry that God is, is um, refining you into. He's growing you. He's maturing you. If you would just take the time to spend time with him in his word, in prayer, in, re- in, um, in reflection, in meditation, he will reveal to you the ministry that he has called you to because you, each one of you, has that. Don't think that, you, oh, I don't know all the, I don't know the Bible that well. I, well, learn it. You can read it. If you need a Bible, we have them here. If you want like a cool one, come into my office. I'll, I'll find one for you. I have like 50. Okay, maybe not. 30. A lot. Bibles. <laughs> Fine, be that way, Stephen. And here's the last thing I want you to get a hold of. It takes time for God to build the life in us that he's going to use to change the world. But I know that there are world changers right in this room. There are world changers in this church. If you would just get past, when we get past ourselves, and we begin to focus on him. And don't take the setbacks and don't take the challenges and don't take the, um, uh, the bumps and the bruises that we get trying to serve his kingdom as, as God putting a, a stop to it or squashing it. He wants to refine you. He wants to grow you. He wants to mature you into something that you, don't, you can't even imagine what it is yet. It's bigger than what you can imagine. It's bigger than what you can picture in your brain or in your heart because God is way bigger than any plans that we can come up with. And he wants to see his plan. Well, he will see his plan. And if it's not you, he'll get a rock. That's what the scripture says. Be the one that says yes. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you don't know what your ministry is yet. Be like Saul. Spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time in his word and prayer. Listen. Maybe talk less. Listen more. He will show you because it's his will for each and every person to bring glory to his kingdom, to push back the darkness with the light of Christ. It takes time for God to build the life in us before he releases us to change this world. But it is time that is well spent. Father, thank you that you take the time with each and every one of us. Thank you that we don't have to be discouraged when things don't go our way. But we can look to you and ask, what is it you want me to learn? Where is it you want me to go? What is it you want me to speak? Who is it 
you want me to speak to? Lord, would you instill those questions in every believer's heart? And that you would cultivate a kingdom mindset that we would be light in the darkness, that we would be a voice calling out of the wilderness, that we would point people to Jesus no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing. So Father, I pray that you would release ministry into this room, ministries that are going to have kingdom consequences, ministries that will have eternal consequences for the kingdom of God and for those who believe. We love you and we praise you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's almost fall. It's going to snow soon. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.
When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. As someone who preaches, I'm going to tell you, I know this for sure, that you have lost the crowd when they're gnashing their teeth at you from the seats. (laughs) They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. These powerful, dignified, respected religious leaders completely lose their mind and they drag Stephen out of the city. They possibly threw him down some embankments into a ditch. That's the way you stone people. They took off their coats and they threw rocks at him until he was dead. Now, now remember, stoning someone to death was hard work for the people throwing rocks. Like, that's why they, they would strip down to the waist, because they're going to work up a sweat. And when you're trying to stone a younger person, it's even more difficult. And even after you're knocked out, they still have to throw rocks at you to make sure that you, you pass. It's a horrible way to die horrible, horrible way, painful way to die. It took a while to be killed. And yet the ugliness of this scene, the ugliness of this death, we see the beauty of Christ in his life. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Look, he said, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. During this moment where he is going to die, his focus is still on Christ. He is standing tall. He is living the race. He is going to finish well. And you know, so often we see in the scripture where Jesus is referred to as sitting at the right hand of the Father. But here Stephen sees him standing. It's almost like Jesus is welcoming home his son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on home. Your days are over. When faced with hatred, he didn't back down. He stood tall. He lived like Jesus and he would die like Jesus. He would, he would, he would yell out, receive my spirit, just like Jesus from the cross. Father, it's into your hands that I commit my spirit. Living and dying like Christ. There is grace. There is power. And then verse 60, the last verse. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Just as Jesus prayed for those who crucified him, Stephen is asking God to forgive the people who are murdering him. There is a man of grace. There is a man of power. There is a man of wisdom in the single most difficult moment of this guy's life. He pours out grace, power, and wisdom. He lived like Christ. He would die like Christ. Now all this to say... 
it's important for us to remember these things because when our time comes, some of us, it may be a prolonged period, but who we are as people will rise to the surface. How we lived our life will be made evidence during those last moments. What was important to you will come out. And if you lived a life of grace, then grace will season those last moments of life. If you lived a life of power in the Holy Spirit, then power will season those last moments of your life. It will manifest itself at the end. If you've lived a life of pressing into God for spiritual wisdom and understanding him and knowing him better, those things, you'll be able to speak those things to those that may be in the room with you because how you live your life will come to, will come to a head when you're at the end of it. I often think, and not in a, a morose, gloomy way, but I often think, like, how will I be remembered? What will people say about me when I die? Or what, what will, you know, what will the, um, what do they call that? The eulogy. eulogy. What will the eulogy be like? For me, I want to end well. Like, I, I want to end this life well. And what I'm learning as I get older, that to end well, we have to live well. And I don't mean following the rules, I don't mean trying to be a good person and not killing someone, but, but I'm, I'm talking about allowing the Holy Spirit of God to change me each and every day into the likeness of his son because his son was filled with power and grace and wisdom. I have to look at myself and say, am I submitting myself, my life, my stuff, my things, my wants, my desires, my priorities? Am I submitting these things through Jesus to God, submitting them to the Holy Spirit, listening to what God wants from me, and then being obedient to that? See, that's what a life well lived is. Am I in the Word? so that I can know who he is through his son? Am I in prayer, both, both praying with my mind and praying with my spirit? Am I praying so that I can better understand who he is? Because when my time comes, I know that the life I live will manifest in those moments before I'm taken home. And I want to end well. I want to end like Stephen. Maybe not the whole throwing rocks till I die, but, you know, the, the other parts, to be known as a person of grace and power, and wisdom. I pray the prayer of Paul in Ephesians that God would give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so I can know him better. And so, all of this text, all of this story, to say this, that, that every day is important. Every day, the things that come out of your mouth mean something, good or bad, life or death. Every action that we, we partake in means something, good or bad, life or death. Every thought that we have that we don't take captive to Christ, it becomes a distraction and pulls us away because a life that's well-lived, centered in the gospel 
will be a life well lived at the end when he calls us home. I want to encourage you, live well. Pursue with everything. Don't, don't back down. Don't stand down. Stand firm. Stand tall. Be a man and a woman of grace, power, and wisdom. And then watch how you'll be remembered. I guess you can't do that, but you know what I mean. And so, Father, we thank you for the story of your first martyr. Thank you that you've preserved it for us. Thank you that um, it's an encouragement that we too can stand tall in the face of what this world throws at us and live a life that's worth the price that's been paid by your son. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Love you guys. See you next week.